All right, good morning. Glad each and every one of you are here with us today. Um, it's a great Sunday to be here. Um, one reason is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we'll be in today, but um, it's a good, good Sunday to be here for a lot of reasons. Um, I want you to, to um, just uh, share a couple things before we get started into the text. One is just the awesome weekend we had last weekend in advance. Um, a lot of us were able to go um, up to a lake house on, in Gainesville and enjoy the weekend together. But more than that, um, experience God's presence together, uh, to worship together, to uh, learn from his word, and also to um, just to share one another's stories. And it was just, it was so powerful just to hear um, so many different stories of, of redemption. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, most people who've been part of our church for a while, they may look like, um, you know, they've always had their life together. Uh, but then you hear the stories about how God pulled people out of darkness and out of, you know, really, um, really dark, deep places and brought them into his light. And it's just really, really powerful to, to hear those stories and to, and to see that. I, um, man, it was just so good. I, I do think with all the tears, we might have filled up like a five-gallon bucket um, if we had put them all in one spot. Uh, what's that? Yeah, man, yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe just a couple of people by themselves could have done that. But it was a, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of we cried a lot and we laughed a lot. Uh, but the main thing is that God moved among us, and something that is something that we even saw the Sunday before here. Um, God working and moving, and something that has uh, just really been needed in our church. You know, we look back at 2014, and we saw some really good things happen in 2014, but. As a whole, in terms of just like our, our spiritual, I think, health and where the whole was, not individuals, but where the whole was with Jesus, just not as, as close and as vibrant um, as it has been in the past. And so um, it, it's really wonderful just to see a new day, a new day dawning um, for our church. And um, we just invite everyone to participate in that. Uh, but how do we participate in that? We go to Jesus. We give him our junk. We ask him to fill us with his spirit and to renew us, and we, you know, walk closer and closer to him. That's how we all individually participate, and that's how we collectively participate. It ultimately comes down to Jesus. And really, that's going to bring us to that, that big why question. You know, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do what we do? You know, why are we here in the first place? And that's that question that so many, you know, I think every person hopefully asks at some point in their, in their life here on the earth is, why are we here? Why am I here? And unfortunately, many people don't find a good answer to that question. Uh, last night, uh, my wife and I were at a coffee shop, and <laughs> um, we, we were spending some time together, and she had gotten a, a new Bible, and so she's had, you know, the Bible she has been working out of, you know, for like the last 15 years. And she's one of those who, you know, she highlights with different colors uh, and so for different things. And she has these different symbols, uh, markings that she puts for different um, categories of verses. And so there's, there's really not a, hardly a page in her Bible that doesn't have, you know, verses highlighted and, you know, markings on it. And so... She didn't want to lose that when she started the new Bible, so she was transferring all those highlights <laughs> and all those symbols um, to the new one. And she had been doing this, she had done this a couple other times before we got there, and she's, a, you know, like working through Isaiah, you know, doing that. And, you know, and I'm there kind of doing some of my own study, and, you know, this uh, little bit older guy walks up and he goes, oh, y'all are doing some, some deep stuff there, huh? And so, uh, you know, we're looking at that, and we're, you know... We're, we're kind of focused, but, you know, here's this guy talking, so we're like, okay, you know, let's chat for a minute. And um, he, he starts talking, and, you know, he, it ends, he ends up saying some kind of interesting things about, like, well, you know, I mean, you know, the written world, you know, things that are written really aren't so great for the esoteric world and, you know, stuff like that. And then he talks about how, you know, we're these, you know, multidimensional creatures. Like, we live in these different dimensions, but... Um, you know, we don't know what's going on in these other dimensions with our other selves. Just what's going on in this dimension, because if we knew that, then we wouldn't be able to focus on what's going on in this dimension. I'm like, well, well how do you know that? Well, you know, I, I read it in this book. 
he says. I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, and it's a book that was written in the mid-90s, and it's this New Age book that's very popular, probably still, like, number one on the New Age list. And, um, you know, so we end up having this long conversation, uh, but he ends up, you know, as I'm studying 1 Corinthians 15, we talk some about the resurrection of Jesus, and he's like, yeah, well, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I was like, okay, well, then, if, that's, if you believe that, then the only way you can believe that is because these people wrote it for us. The people who wrote the Bible wrote that for us and told us about that. So you might want to go back and actually look at you know, what the Bible says. And so we had this whole long conversation about how we could trust the Bible. <coughs> and, you know, my wife, Claire, you know, just being who she is, at the end she gives her, you know, that Bible she had worked out of for 15 years to this man to, to use not near done her, you know, finished with her notes and, you know, you know, but she felt like God wanted her to do it. Um, and she's had that experience a couple different times, you know, in her life where she's felt like God really wanted her to give her Bible to someone. Um, and, you know, we'll leave the results, you know, that are, are to the Lord and to that person, you know, what, what he does with it, whether he reads it or not, whether he takes it as truth or not. Um, but there's something, there is something powerful in the Word of God that we have. And as we get into 1 Corinthians 15 uh, today, you know, it really answers the why question for us. Why are we here this morning together worshiping God? We'll find it here. Let's pray and we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, God, your love for us that fills our hearts. Uh, we thank you for each person that's here. You know each life. You know all of our thoughts, all the deepest things of our hearts and minds. God, nothing can be hidden from you. And so, Lord, help us not to hide from you. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you of who we are. And, Lord, most of us have already agreed that without you we're nothing, that we're desperate for you. And so... This morning, Lord, we ask you to remind us of the why. And for those who haven't gotten there yet, please show them the why. The why to it all. Jesus, you're the one who died for us. You're the one who rose from the dead. And ultimately, you are our why. You are the answer to that question. And so we thank you, Jesus, for who you are. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, let's just read the first couple of verses. Uh, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, 1 Corinthians 15, so Paul is reminding the church at Corinth of the gospel. He's reminding them, of what his purpose, you know, of coming to them in the first place was, the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news. It's the power of God unto salvation for who? For everyone who believes. And that's powerful. It's a great news for us, it's great news for our world. And the salvation that God gives us um, is really in three tenses. It's in past, present, future. God saves us from our sinful past. And the, you know, what we deserve from our sinful past is separation from God for eternity. We don't deserve to have any sort of relationship for, with God. We don't deserve for God to have anything to do with us. But when God you know, saves us, when we believe in Jesus, because of Jesus, he wipes away our, all the sin that's on our account. He puts the righteousness of Jesus to our account. He proclaims that we are just. He justifies us. He makes us right. Even though we were guilty, he takes away our guilt and our shame, and he makes us right with God, and he cleanses us from all our sin. He saves us from hell. And then he saves us from the power of sin. So in our daily lives today, those of us who know Jesus, we do not have to live as slaves to sin, but we can live in victory. And whenever we sin, it was simply because of our choice. Because we gave in to the weakness of the flesh by not living in the power of the Spirit of God. 
but we are saved from the power of it. There's nothing that has to have dominion over us. If you say, well, I'm addicted to this or I'm addicted to that, that doesn't have to be true in your life because the power of God, salvation working in you, gives you freedom. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a struggle, but there can be victory in our struggle. We do not have to live as defeated people. And if you believe that you have to live as a defeated person throughout your life, well, you probably will. But if you believe there's victory in Jesus, and you strive to be close to him and live close to him, you'll find more and more victory in your life. But there's not victory without that connection. It's that, that salvation for our present, um, as we fight against sin, is, the, is potential. It's potential victory that we have. But before, we didn't have the potential for that sort of victory. And then we are saved in the future tense that, that salvation guarantees our fellowship with God forever and ever, that the Holy Spirit has sealed us. And we have, are, are put into the family of God, and that's a permanent thing. So what does he mean then when he says, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you? Well, I... That's in the present tense. And so, again, it's you know that salvation from the power of sin, that salvation from throwing your life away here on the earth. Like if You've got to hold fast in order to enjoy that. Because just because I'm a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to cheat on my wife. Doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to look at pornography on the Internet. Doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to be full of anger and to hate my neighbor. Doesn't mean I don't have the ability to do those things. I still, my sinful flesh still has that. So I have to strive to walk close to Jesus and live in the power of God that is accessible. He says, unless you believed in vain. Now there's two things here. I mean, the holding fast of the word, I want to go back to that. When you hold fast to the word, that's evidence of your salvation. If you don't hold fast to the word, if you're living a life that is contrary to what you say you believe, that Jesus died for you and rose again, then perhaps there was no salvation there ever to begin with, and you need to examine your heart before the Lord about that. Now, I don't want everybody walking around always questioning their salvation. That's the devil's game. Okay. But there has to be some fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no life. But unless you believed in vain, it means unless you believe something that was never worth believing in the first place. And that's what he's, gets, he's going to get at here. We're going to see that as we continue on in the chapter. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance, verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So, first importance, he's saying, this is what I brought to you. This was the, you know, the message that I brought to you, the most important things that you needed to know. And what did you need to know? You needed to know that Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures. That the Old Testament prophecies were about Christ and about his payment for our sins. Isaiah 53 is a perfect example of that. If uh, you want to write that one down to go back and look at later. That he was buried. That's the evidence that he died. You know, he was put into the tomb and he was there. And then on the third day that Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. That, again, if you go back to Isaiah 53, just as an example... The prophecy was not just that, that the Messiah would die for his people, for their sins, but that he would also be raised from the dead. So again, that's according to what had been prophesied, according to the word of God. Now, then it says, here's evidence that this is true. Christ appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, to the twelve, to over 500 at once, to James, probably there speaking about the half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles or messengers, and then to Paul. And so he showed himself to, to these people, and they can give evidence and testimony. And there were others, uh, many others who saw as well. Um, 
Paul here is looking to give some of the evidence. He's not looking to give a detailed account of every piece of evidence. But according to the scriptures, again, Jesus fulfills the scriptures. The scriptures are the word of God. Jesus Christ is also the word of God. He is the word made flesh. He is in God incarnate. You know, God putting on human flesh. Here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus and the word of God, it's really a package deal. It's, a, it's kind of an all or nothing sort of thing. Because how do we know what, who God is? what he is like, and that he sent Christ, that Christ is God in the flesh. We know it because the scriptures tell us so. Without the scriptures, we don't know any of that. And so really, it doesn't make sense to take the word of God as true, yeah, I believe the Bible, and not strive, not say, hey, I really want to follow Jesus and be right with him. It also doesn't make sense to say, I want to be right there with Jesus, but... The Word of God, and eh, not so much. The Bible, not so much. I don't really want to mess with that, or I don't see a need to really dive into that or to believe what it says. That doesn't make much sense either. And there are a lot of people who try for that second take on that. Why? Because they want to make Jesus the way they want him to be. They want him to fall into you know, their view of him. They want to put... Jesus on, as a piece of pottery on their wheel and spin him and form him and shape him into what Jesus, they want Jesus to look like and what purpose they want him to serve. But Jesus is who he is, and he cannot be changed. So one of the evidence that Paul gives is actually himself. He says he's born as one out of due time. Why does he say that? Because he was one persecuting the church. He was one who hated the church and was trying to destroy it. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus teaches him, shows him who he is, and teaches him when he says to him, you know, that it's hard you know, for you to go against me, basically. Why do you per- Jesus actually asks him the question, the big why question, why do you persecute me? And so this radically changes Paul's life. He goes from the one trying to destroy it to its greatest builder. Think about that. What happened in his life? There was a change. When somebody meets Jesus, we should expect change in their life. Going on to verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Okay, so he says he's the least of the apostles. He puts himself in the humble position. He says by God's grace, he is what he is. Do you know, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're walking with the Lord today, that's by God's grace. It's not because you were some really special human being that you deserved God's grace and favor more than someone else. Certainly not. You know, you heard the message. You heard this message of hope of the word of God, and you said, yes, Lord, I want you. You know, but make no mistake about it, God is the one who who pursues us. God is the, it's God's plan of salvation. God is the one who sent Christ for us. We did none of that, and we were powerless to do any of that. All we are is people who said, yes, I'll take the gift. I'll receive that gift. But we are not the gift maker, and we are not the gift giver. That's all God. And so when he says, whether we preached or someone else preached, you believed. And that's the key thing. Paul's not so concerned about who gets the credit for these people coming to believe in Jesus and having that same faith that he has. Because, again, Paul didn't make the gift. Paul's not the one who gives the gift. He's just telling others where they can find the gift. Telling others that the gift is available. And that's what we are to do as well. Hey, there's a gift. His name is Jesus, and he's awesome. Here he is. That gift is for you. Participate in that gift. You know, that's what we're asking people to do. 
But we don't make that gift. God should get all the credit. We know that the word says that every good and every perfect gift comes from above. That's most beautifully typified in Jesus. I mean, Jesus is a perfect example of that. But every good thing in our life comes from God. Everything bad in her life comes as, you know, ultimately a result of living in a fallen world, which is a result of what? Adam and Eve's first sin, ultimately on Adam. And then all of our sins and the sins of everybody around us. You know, you look at the problems in our world. You look at the problem of um, many people not having enough food to eat. It's not because our world can't produce enough food for everyone. It's because of sin. It's because of greed. It's because of misuse of resources, bad stewardship of what God has given. It's not because God put us on a planet that wasn't capable of feeding us. It's because of a misuse of what God has given. Now we have a big problem here in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's the problem. People are preaching that. People are are saying that, that there's no resurrection of the dead. Why is this a big deal? Well, he explains it, verses 13 through 19. Let's read them. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's why it's a big deal. That is why it's a big deal. Okay, he says, first of all, their preaching is in vain. That's number one. Second, their faith is in vain. Their faith is in vain. Okay, so what you believe, back to verse 2, has been not worth Believing in. You believed in vain. Number three, the apostles are false witnesses against God, saying he did what he did not do. Okay, so if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised, and then they're preaching that God did something that he didn't do. So there would be false witnesses against God. Fourth, if true, so again, Christ is not raised. Fifth, your faith is worthless. Again, he, he repeats a couple of these because... Hey, this is a really big deal. Your faith, again, is worthless. It was in vain. It's worthless. Listen to this. You're still in your sins. You thought your burden, your debt had been taken away. Well, it hasn't. If Christ isn't raised from the dead. And those who have died in Christ have no hope. He says, you know, he he used that term, those who have fallen asleep. Well, that's a gentle, very kind way to say those who have died, that they're you know, body and spirit is now separated. They ha- that they have, they died without hope. Hey, you thought you were going to be eternally with God, you know, and in his presence forever and ever. Well, n- not so fast. And then that they should be pitied for wasting their lives. We're of all people the most pitied. So, you know, it's in addition uh, if there's no resurrection, in addition to believing and teaching lies, Paul and many others gave up so much. Many gave, you know, Paul gave up his position in society. He was a well-respected you know, person. Um, many people gave up their families. Many people, because their families would have nothing to do with them when they followed Jesus. Or because maybe their, families, their whole family came to know Christ, and they're the only ones still alive because the other ones have been murdered because of Christ. They experienced physical brutality. Think of all the times Paul and others were you know, thrown in the jail and, and beaten and put in chains. Hunger, emotional distress, all their suffering would be worthless and pointless. 
The answer to their why question would be that there was no answer, that they were wrong and they wasted their lives. The same thing for us. You're giving up stuff. You know, you're giving up certain opportunities in order to follow Jesus because you believe he wants to do one thing and not another. You're giving up your resources. You could be, you know, you could have a bigger house or a nicer car or whatever else. But you wanted to give those resources to the Lord's work. Well, you wasted all that because you could have just used it for your own good. If there is no resurrection and if Christ is not raised. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. We have our faith in Jesus because of the resurrection. But without the resurrection, there is no church at all. There is no faith to believe in. There are no writings of Jesus to read. It's all gone. It's all gone if there's no resurrection. Some people have this crazy idea that the church invented the resurrection. But they need to understand without the resurrection, there is no church. It's exactly the opposite. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, there's some good news here. This is where we get the good news. Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. We get that? That is the good news. That is the truth. Now, Paul gave some evidences you know, earlier. Like I said, he didn't give every, all of them. Um, we've got a, a good paper. We'll make it available online about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, but we also examine the different theories that have come along through time about fraud, about swoon theory, hallucination theory, allegory, immaterial resurrection, invention, all of those, and examine those and break them down and say, why does this fall apart? Here's why. And you're left with the miracle of Jesus. Okay. So again, we'll, you know, hold that, table that. But right now, let's look at some of these implications about Christ being risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of those who are asleep. So he's not the, the only one that's going to be raised. Many more are going to be raised. Or who was, sorry, he's not the first one who was risen. Sorry, scratch that. He is the first one in that sense. Jesus had raised from the dead, and see a couple of people in the Old Testament get raised from the dead. But in this sense of this permanence, because those all died again, but in the permanence, Jesus is the first raised from the dead. You know, that's a permanent state for eternity. Others are to follow. But what does he say here? For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, notice that. In Adam all die. Those are the key words here, in Adam and in Christ. But in Adam, you know, because of Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion against God, we're all born with death as part of, part of us. We're all born with a sin nature as part of us. That we all experience that. Why? Because we all share this commonality with Adam, our first human father. We're all in Adam. Whether you want to be in Adam or don't want to be in Adam, guess what? You're in Adam. You are in him because he is your first parent, first parent. We all have him in common. But then he says, so also, in Christ, all will be made alive. So again, the key there is in Christ. Like, you have to be in Christ in order to be one of those who is made alive. You know, Paul did not all of a sudden become a universalist. He didn't all of a sudden stop believing what Jesus taught us about, you know, eternal judgment and start believing something else and then teaching that. No, he, he, he clearly believed in those things. And we're going to see that as we as we continue on in this. Verse 23, 
but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So basically, you know, there's a, there's a time and there's an opportunity to be in Christ, and then, you know, at Christ's return, now we've got a closing of the door of opportunity, but those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So he's not giving, Paul again here is not giving all the details. He's not giving all the details about all the things that happen when the time of the church is finished, you know, and, and his return is set up and all of the different things that will happen at the, in those times. But he's setting about this general deal of that Christ, in relation to the resurrection, that Christ is the first fruits, that those who are at Christ at his coming will be, you know, in him or part of the, his kingdom. And then when the end comes, Jesus is going to hand the kingdom over to the Father. So that's really all he's trying to outline there. Is a, not a detailed outline, but just a general outline. And then in verse 25, it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the last enemy. Now, he had victory. Again, remember at the cross, he had victory over sin. And in the, when he rose from the dead, there's victory over death. But the fullness of that victory hasn't been seen. And why do we know that? We're still dying. <laughs> and people who love Jesus are still dying. Still, their bodies are going to the grave. But Jesus, remember, Paul also says, and the Word of God says, you know, to be absent from the body, for the believer in Jesus to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? But... God made us from the very beginning. He created us with bodies, and that's part of what it is to be a human. And Jesus himself, when he took on human flesh and became you know, like us so that he could redeem us, when he's resurrected, he still has a physical body, different from ours, not same, bound to the same you know, rules of physics that ours are bound to. But that was also a showing that one day we're going to be like him, so, you know, we are spirit creatures, but we also, God designed us to be housed, you know, to have a body that we're in, and so that's our eternal state as well. We're still going to have, there's still going to be physicalness, physicality, I guess we could say, to our humanness, in our, even in the eternal state, okay, like Christ has, and we look forward to that, that's going to be, because that's how we you know, in many ways, how we interact with the universe that God made. So it's all part of his design, all part of his plan. But that death is going to be done away with, and, and that's going to be good. The proof that that death is going to be done away with is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the evidence that, that one day that's also going to be done for us in terms of humans, particularly as followers of Christ. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 John writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death, and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, which is the final finality of death. Who does all this? Back to verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted 
who put all things in subjection to him, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, these are interesting verses because what we see from it, you know, Jesus is not above the Father. They are both equally God, yet the Son exists in subjection to the Father. You know, and we've talked about that issue of submitting you know, to one another and in different roles in our lives or in different places of life, uh, one has to subject to be subjected or to submit. We could use that word instead. Um, one has to submit oneself to others. And, you know, and again, in our rebellious human hearts, any idea of submitting to another, we don't like. Any idea of that, we don't like. Submitting to any sort of authority, submitting to the laws of our country, you know, that, the good ones especially, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we're, we're not, we do have some exceptions. If um, a law of any country tells you to murder people, we say, well, that's a law we can't, you know, that our, of our nation that we can't follow. Why? Because God's law is higher than human law, right? So there are things with that, but I'm talking about laws that are good laws and that are for our good. Many times even those, we, we naturally buck up against those. We naturally want to fight against those because our human flesh is rebellious. Our human flesh is rebellious. What are you going to do with it? We keep on living in it? Or do we follow the example of Jesus who willingly submitted himself to the Father's will? And who will be in this, look, in this eternal state as one who is submitted. Yet he's equal to the Father and he's, all, you know, he's, he's got all the power that the Father has. And yet he's willing to do that. Well, what does that, again, what does that teach us? What does that teach us about ourselves and about what our attitude should be? You know, to live as humble people before God and before, you know, one another. And we see that that was really the problem for our first parent, Adam. You know, for Adam and Eve, what they did was they didn't want to submit to God and to his way. And when they were told that they could have, you know, a higher place, they wanted to take that for themselves. And all it brought on themselves and on all of us since is misery. And that's exactly what happens. Whenever, whenever we are not submitting to God, whenever we're saying, I'm going to be the boss, I know what's right, I know what's better, then we are bringing misery upon ourselves. And we say, I'm not going to follow God, I'm not going to follow your ways about these things, I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, it's just misery. We just bring trouble. We're just like, hey, trouble, come on right here, knock me down. We're begging for it. But when we go to God and we're humble before him, we submit our lives to him, then it doesn't mean that we have an easy life. Sometimes life is even harder, but it's life lived within the power of God and with the fellowship of God. And it's a life worth living. So now coming back to that why question. Why do we believe in Jesus? We believe it because God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the risen one. The grave couldn't hold him. And so then, what the resurrection causes, it means that the cross actually has value. It means that Jesus coming in the first place, it means that the incarnation is real and has value. God coming and putting on human flesh. It means that what the Old Testament prophets wrote us has value. It means that the word of God, you know, the gospels, the teachings of Jesus have value. And the teachings of the apostles, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, have value for our lives. It gives value to everything. It answers that question, why do we exist? Jesus. Because he made us. He's ultimately, Christ is the you know, active agent in creation. The Son of God is the active agent in creation. It answers that question. You know, back to you know, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
you know, of, it answers that question of what was here before when nothing else was here? How did we get here? It answers all of those why questions for our, uni- like, why our universe exists and why we exist within it. Jesus is the answer to the why. Why does our church exist? You know, and why do we do diff- things differently than a lot of other churches do? Well, did we just want to be different? Did we just say, you know, there's just a lot of value in being different? No, we don't look at that. We said, well, Jesus is our why, and the, the, the Word of God, the value that Jesus places on the Word of God tells us that we need to put value in the Word of God and actually try to do things according to how Jesus says, how the Word of God instructs us. So we say, why it's Jesus? Why do we take the bread and cup and try to do that every Sunday. Well, the why is Jesus. The answer to that question is Jesus. The answer to the why is Jesus. Why do we share the gospel? <coughs> Jesus. Because he's the only hope and because he told us to. Locally and globally. He's the, why, he's the answer to the why. Jesus. Why do we, so, so then when people ask, well, well, why are we doing what we do in Mexico? Like, why are we participating in that work? Answer. Jesus, like Jesus loves those people. He loves those, you know, he loves that those indigenous people up in the mountains that most of the world could care less about, could care nothing about. Totally fine just for them to live in, you know, complete poverty, for them not to have medical care, for the, you know, or access to it, for them, you know, to just have dirt floors and cook over open fires and have lung disease and everything else. No big deal for most of the world. But why do we care? Why do we care to go and to share and to invest? Jesus. Why are we trying to build a school in Tanzania? Jesus. Jesus is the first answer to that question. If he's not, we don't have the right idea about why we're trying to build a school in Tanzania. It's for Jesus. It's for his glory, for his honor, and because because of this. Because of how Jesus viewed children and looked at the children. And that, you know, we're made in the image of God. It's because of Jesus. But why do we want to make disciples who make disciples? Again, Jesus. Because Jesus is worthy for not just us to worship him, but for others to worship him and for others to have the capacity to lead them, you know, lead others to Jesus. And that... For generations and generations, Jesus is worth more than just our generation's worship. He is worth the generations to come. Jesus is the answer. Why do we want you to work hard at whatever you do, even if it doesn't pay well or doesn't pay at all? Jesus. Because ultimately, everything we do has to be about him. And yes, he knows we need food and we need resources and these things, but he has to be the why. If your why for what your career choice is, it pays well, I'm sorry. That's not good enough. You don't have the right answer to that question. It needs to be because of Jesus. That's what he wants me to do. So whether you are a sanitation worker or a medical doctor, do it all for the glory of Jesus and for his, for his purposes, but you better be able to answer Jesus as the why. Not because that's the only job I could get, but because I can glorify Jesus with this job, even if other people don't view it as anything worth doing. And that is ultimately, why do we want to live in a way that pleases God? Jesus. You know, why are some of us a little bit frustrated about how things went in 2014 and have a little bit of disappointment about what could have been? Because Jesus was worthy of more than we gave him in 2014. That's why. Because he's worthy. Because he's Jesus. He is the answer. 
So when we're talking about, hey, you know, we just had an advance because I'll, I'll say we, we, we don't retreat, we advance. You know, we, we, it's a little cheesy, whatever. <laughs> okay. But we want to advance with Jesus. We want to go where he's going. We want to be right there with him. We're not trying to be like, hey, Jesus, we've got better ideas and plans than you do. So we're going to do those. We're not going to do that. And we're not going to do, well, Jesus, what you have for us is actually we're going to require sacrifice and work and effort. So, you know, we don't want to do that either because we'd rather just sit on our tails. But we say Jesus is worthy, and therefore we want to do what he wants us to do. And, you know, we might not have every detail of that figured out. I think we made really good progress in the advance of things that we can be, should be more doing for the name of Jesus because of Jesus. We don't have to have all of that figured out, the, you know, especially in advance because the Lord's going to show us step by step. The main thing is that our hearts, and that's what I think we gain more than anything else over that weekend, and hopefully that will continue, but that our hearts are for Jesus. Where is your heart? And right now, if your heart isn't for Jesus, then why? And the only answer that will be is that right, right now, because of sin or because of rebellion or because of whatever it is, Jesus isn't answering that why question for you. You're putting something else Something else is answering that why question for you. That why you're living w- the way you're living. Because it feels good, because I want to, because of I, 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 because of the self. Because I don't want to submit to God. That's all what it comes down to. So that's heart has to change before anything else can change. And Jesus has to have his rightful place, which is first. He has to be our why. If he's not our why, we're always going to miss it. But guess what? When Jesus is your why, you don't miss it. You don't miss out. You don't have live with the regrets when he's your why. So as we continue on on this path, Jesus needs to be more and more the clearest answer to that why. And when he's the answer to the why, then we strive to do everything else as best we can for God's glory and honor. The what could have been different things. The what could be Ecuador instead of Mexico. The what could be Kenya instead of Tanzania. There are going to be what's that play out. But if you don't have the why right, then the what, however you do the what, is going to miss the point. Because Jesus won't be the center of it. He won't be the purpose of it. He won't be what every, who everyone is being pointed to in the whole endeavor. The why is the essential. For our life, individual, our individual lives, and for our church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the answer to all the great why questions of our lives and of our church. And Jesus, as we take that bread and we take the cup first, Before we take it, Lord, help us to come before you and to acknowledge that you are the why and that we would submit ourselves to you. Your your word says that if we love you, that we'll obey you. You said that, Jesus. You said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And Lord, we know your commandments are good and we know they're not burdensome. We know your commandments are to Love God with all that we are. To love our neighbors as ourselves. Even our enemies. 
that your commandments are love and truth, faithfulness. Lord, that we acknowledge that whenever we're not living in the way that pleases you, that we are the why to that. We are the reason why. Not because of you and not because you didn't give us the power, not because you didn't give us yourself, not because you didn't make yourself accessible to us, dear Jesus, but because we distanced ourselves from you. And so, Jesus, help us to throw away all of our sins. Because our answer to why we throw away our sins is because, Jesus, you are worthy. Because you were the one who went to the cross. You were the one who was sent for that purpose. You were the one who paid for our sins and took our debts and took our guilt and took our shame. And we we were not in a position to at all look to you. You bent down and you grabbed us. So now that we can, we can come boldly into your throne of grace, O God, and make our request known to you. And our first request is that Jesus would be first in our hearts. And that all that we do would flow out of who we are in you, Jesus. But help us also to do. Help us not just to be people who hear the word and agree with it, agree that you're first, and then fail to act on it. Fail to provide for our neighbors. Fail to to love them, to tell them the truth about you. And the great gift of your salvation. Help us, Lord. We need you desperately. But as we take that bread and that cup, dear Jesus, we give you thanks and we say, yes, Lord, you are first. Be first fully in our church, Lord. Because it's really your church. Be first in it, Lord. And use it for your purposes, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.